Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and look at your word. We ask you to be with us, guide us, lead us into what you would want us to see from this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, in the previous chapter, uh, Samuel, remember, says his farewell. He asked him if he had taken anything for them to, to say it now in front of the God and in front of the king, and he'd repay it. Uh, and then he sends a, and because of their reproach, he asks God to send thunder and rain during the harvest time. And then he tells them, tells them that God is with them and not going not to destroy them because of, his names, of God's name's sake. So, so in chapter 13, verse 1, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel. There, there of 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, and in Mount Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gilead of, ben of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all Israel, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard, heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had in an abomination with the Philistines, and the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore of the multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from Bethlehem. All right, so let's look at this. Saul, as it tells us in this first, uh, first verse, has been reigning for one year. So he reigned for two years, and it says that he chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with him in Michmash, and Michmash is about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. It's not on your map, but if you find Jerusalem, go about 10 miles, which is a very small distance on that scale. And in Mount Bethel, which so up in that whole area, we have Bethel, but he's below Bethel. And when we're talking in the, today, we're going to be looking at Mizpah, Geba, uh, Beth Horon, that area, that whole area just there uh, on that border of Benjamin and Ephraim. And it says he gathered 3,000 men. Now, when we've been talking about these various wars, you know that 3,000 people is not a lot of people. Okay, he did not gather a very big army. He keeps, and it says he takes 2,000 and he gives his son 1,000. Quite, ni quite nice of him to give his son only a thousand people. And Jonathan is going to be in Geiah in Benjamin, but nobody knows exactly where that is. <laughs> Don't try to find it on your map. Uh, it's in Benjamin, which is that little purple area there be above Be Bethlehem. So he's in that area. <laughs> they're, they're not very far apart in their two groups. But... Uh, and it says, the rest of the people he sent home. <laughs> I, I don't know what Saul was thinking when he sent all these people home. Uh, I don't know if he was just saying, let's make a show of force. I've got an army. Well, let's show everybody we've got an army. Uh, a 3,000-man army is not a huge army uh, for any country, much less that even at that time. And then in verse 3, it says, And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and Geba is right, right above the word Benjamin, right under, the, under Mizpah. So Jonathan 
uh, was not looking like they were going to have just a show of force. He says, I'm going to go fight. And this is going to be Jonathan's penchant all through the times when he's mentioned in the Bible. He is not somebody who is cowed easily. Later on, we're going to see that he and his armor bearer attack at a garrison all by themselves and win. <laughs> all right. uh, Jonathan has great faith in God and knows that God is on their side. And when he decides to fight, you know, he goes forward and, and great things happen. So he ends up going in. He wins this battle. And Saul decides, okay, let's, let's celebrate. Let the, let, the Israel, let the Hebrews hear. We won a battle. All right. Uh, one thing we're going to learn about Saul is he has quite a, quite a streak of pride in him, which is going to be his problem with David later on. He, he does not like anybody else getting credit for anything. He doesn't like anybody else uh, looking good. And you'll notice in here that even in verse 4 it says, um, And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison in the Philistines and that, it, and that Israel was had an abomination with the Philistines. And note that it says, And Saul had taken this garrison. Okay. And from what we just read in there above, Saul had nothing to do with it. Jonathan, with his thousand people, led the attack on the garrison and won. And, uh, but Saul gets to take credit for it. Now, that's not too abnormal for a king or even a business leader to take credit for everything that goes on in a business. It's just the way things happen. If you're underneath a leader, they usually get credit for everything good that happens in the in the activities, whether it's war or business or, or even sometimes a family or anything, the, the leader gets that credit, right or wrong, it's what happens. And here Saul is taking credit for what Jonathan has done. And it says, and Israel was an abomination with the Philistines. Up until this point, remember, the Philistines keep attacking Israel, keep conquering Israel. Now, Philistia is way over at the Mediterranean there on that, on that uh, east, southeastern part. All those Ga Gaza, Ascalon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, all those are Philistine cities. Their home, their home is over there in that little spot. And we're way over by Jerusalem, over by the... Uh, uh, Dead Sea and the River Jordan. So these guys are making some very strong incursions into Israel. And they've been putting them in subjection off and on for quite a while. And Saul is kind of saber-rattling here, saying, I'm, I'm king, I'm, I've got an army. And Jonathan wins them, and it says that they were an abomination or a, or a stench, an you know, odious stench to the Philistines. Okay. Uh, this, and you can almost picture it. The Philistines are a very strong nation in the area. And here's this upstart king with an army of 3,000 men saying, conquering one of their cities. Or not even a city, a garrison, which is a military outpost. So Jonathan somehow conquers a military outpost. He didn't just conquer a city. He conquers a military outpost of the Philistines way up there just above Jerusalem. And the Philistines, the people were and called together their people, and Saul, and Saul calls the people up together at Gilgal, which if you look at Gilgal, it's on, right on the, just uh, 
west of the Jordan River above Jericho. All right? So he's calling his people now to war. He just sent them home. <laughs> okay? And Jonathan wins this battle, and now he's calling them back to gather up at Gilgal. And you know, we look at this, and this is very interesting. This is why I say I don't think Saul was looking to go to war at this point in time. I think he was just getting a show of strength. I have an army. And Jonathan went a little beyond a show of strength and, and attacked the garrison and smote the garrison and took, took possession of it. Uh, verse 5, And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as, as the sand on, on the seashore in multitude. And they came and they pitched at Michmash, eastward of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is, again, not on this map. <laughs> They're talk, talking about a lot of little towns. Okay, Saul had gathered 3,000 men. He's called together more. The Philistines are coming. They're going to, they're planning to wipe them out. All right, we, we look at this, 30,000 chariots. Now, a chariot in that day was equivalent to tanks in our, in our day. Uh, I don't know what it would be nowadays. Still, tanks are pretty powerful. So he brings, the Philistines bring in 30,000 let's say tanks for just simplicity, to go against these 3,000 men of Saul, plus whoever else he gets to come. You know, and he, and the, look at the place he picks. He picks a place on the Jordan River. They're camped on the west side of him, and all of Israel is on the west side of that <laughs> and, and north. He did not pick the greatest place to try to gather his troops when the Philistines are amassing a monstrous army against him. All right? And then he has 6,000 horsemen beyond the 30,000. And then it says, the people, we just can't number the people. Now, technically we can, but basically he's saying there were a lot of, a lot of people in this Philistine army. And uh, doesn't, never does tell us how many people gathered with Saul at Gilgal. Okay? And we, know, we know they started with 3,000 people, and he called the people together. Now, remember, he's a new king. He's only been reigning for a year. He's calling together people who are basically going to be farmers and merchants to fight the entire Philistine army, which many of them are true army people. Okay? This is a mismatch by any stretch of the imagination. And we're going to see what God has to, to do with this. And uh, says they came and they pitched and missed. Verse 6. And when the men of, men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were in distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets, in rocks, in high places, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. <laughs> all right, and this makes perfect sense. Okay, even if he had a fully trained army, Looking at an basically innumerable opponent, there's going to be a lot of fear. And it says, the people that were in him, they saw that they were in a strait, a very tight place. They knew, that, they knew that trouble was on their way. And they were in distress, which means literally they were hard-pressed. They were, they were in great fear. And it says that they started hiding. <laughs> and you've got to look at this. They hid any place. They hid in caves, in thickets, 
and this literally is crevices with the with this with the uh, plants growing around it. They hid in the rocks <laughs> or the crags, and they were hidden in the high places up in the top of the mountains, and they were hiding in the pits. Okay, any any excavation, a well, a, a cistern, any place. So basically, it's saying. If there is a place for them to hide, they're hiding. He's losing his army quickly. He's watching a huge army gather against him, and he's watching his people run away. And it says, and those who are still following him were trembling and literally shaking in their boots, basically. Uh, Saul ends up in this way quite frequently as we look at his, his career. He was able to get the armies together all the time, it seems so much, but he didn't inspire confidence in his people very well. And when they get ready to fight Goliath, we get the picture of them shaking and quivering and, and not. This, that time they weren't running away, but everybody was too afraid to do anything. We see this a lot with Saul's army. Well, when they appointed him king, he wouldn't hit. This is true. They just follow his example. <laughs> I thought about that, but that's true. Uh, you know, he was called and he was hiding in the, in the baggage car. So, yeah, I guess it is. They're, following, they're just like their leader. Yeah. Uh, so we see this issue going on. Saul has called together an army. The Philistines have gathered an army to come against him, and now he's losing his army. And this sets up a pivotal problem that's going to happen for Saul. All right. And of course, verse 7, we said, and some of the Hebrews, they didn't just hide, they ran away. <laughs> they went over the Jordan and they went over to Gad and Gilead, which is, is over on the <laughs> east side of the Jordan. So they go, okay, we're, we're not going to even stick around. We're going to go, we're going to put the river between us and the chariots. Uh, verse, verse 8, and he tarried there, Saul, tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither the burnt offering to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end to the offering, of burnt, offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, and he made that, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw the people were scattered from me, and that you came not within the time appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishpah, therefore said I, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, to, burn, to offer the burnt offerings. Okay. If you recall, most of the time when the Israelites would go into battle, one of the first things they would do is make sacrifice and pray to God if they were doing it the right way. Not every single time, but most of the time. And God would give them the blessing to go into battle. And that is their tradition. All right. Apparently, when Saul gathered this army, Samuel had said, okay, in, in seven days I will come to you and I will make the offering and we will... We will be ready to listen to God and do, the, do, do his will. Something kept Samuel away. <laughs> How long away? I don't know. How much beyond the seven days? We don't know. But on the seventh day or shortly thereafter, Saul decides, all my people are leaving me. I'm afraid. And at this point, he's kind of saying, I haven't gone to God. We need God's blessing. 
know, many times in, for us as Christians, we'll do the same thing. God, I need your blessing. I don't know. The timing's not right. I'm not the one who's supposed to be doing it. But God, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And this is where Paul, uh, Saul's problem is going to be. He is taking on the position of the priest. And he is not a priest. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, so that's not the tribe of Levi. He's not supposed to give a burnt offering. He's not supposed to give the, make the uh, Thanksgiving offering. And yet he goes, I need to do this. We're going to see other kings in the Bible that do the same thing. Hezekiah, one of the great kings of Israel, got proud toward the end of his life and said, I'm going to go in and burn sacrifices in the temple. And if you remember his story, as he's, as he's insisting that he's going to do it, he reaches out to grab the, in, the incense lamp, and he gets plagued with leprosy. His whole arm turns leprous, leprous instantly. And the priests chase him out of the temple, and then he is chased out of the palace <laughs> and set aside, and his son rules in his place. And that was his downfall, his pride. Saul has the same problem with pride. All right, Samuel's not here. Somebody's got to do it. It'll be me. This is something that is important for us to stay within the authority God gives us. To, to not try to do somebody else's job that God has placed in a place, in position. And Saul is going to do this. And he said, you know, and you can picture it. He understands. His people are shaking in their boots. He's losing people every day. Here, and they're saying, you know, he's losing people every day. To, from his army. And so his fear is, okay, even if Samuel does come, I'm not going to have any army left to fight. And he makes it that he justifies doing wrong. And many times we do the same thing in our lives. We will justify doing wrong because if you want to justify it, you can find reasons to do wrong. Uh, I was talking to one of the young men to the other, uh, just yesterday at the prison. He had not shown up for an appointment for a test. And when he finally showed up, he goes, well, I, you know, it was a friend of his that drug him in. You know, I'm going, you need to be one th sure of one thing. Once you make one mistake, admit it and deal with it. Don't compound it by not, not correcting it or making, making it in. And this is what Saul's going to do. He's making all kinds of mistakes. We don't know what all of his mistakes were up to this point, but he, now he's getting ready to make a big mistake. He's going to usurp the authority of the priest. And that's what he's, you know, and he says, you know, he sees all of his army coming up, and he says, bring me the offerings. I'm the king. I, you know, I'm the king. I've got, uh, I'm, I'm the one in charge of the country, so now I'm going to do, I'm going to do the priest job as well. He wants to do the, the priest. He wants the priest. Oh, no. The peace offering is well, the peace offering wasn't the big deal for him. It was the burnt offering that he wanted because he wanted God on his side. So it wasn't the feast that he was looking for. He was just trying to, he was trying to do the right thing the wrong way. And this is something we have to be very careful of. And we talk about this oftentimes. Why do we do the service that we do for God? Are we trying to impress God or trying to impress other people, which is even worse? You know, both are bad, but, you know, trying to impress other people. Look how good I am. You know, I give whatever I give. I, I, I serve whatever I serve. If we're doing it to be seen by people, it is completely the wrong reason. And this is what Paul, uh, Saul is doing. He's saying, bring the offerings here. We've got to get this offering made, and, you know, we'll get God on our side, and maybe the people will stay. 
That's how he's thinking. I mean, his, his logic would almost, from a human point of view, is good. We're going to make this offering to God, and the people will get happy. God's on our side. They'll, they'll quit running away. Maybe some of the people that are in hiding and have gone over the Jordan will come back. His mindset on the outward side is good. He's got strong reasons for doing it. But you cannot do the wrong thing for God and be blessed. All right, this is something we've got to keep in mind. We cannot do things the wrong way and say, God, I want you to bless it. Uh, this is why it's very important that we say, God, I'm on, what do you want me to do? And not try to sit there and do things the way they want. I think Judas Iscariot's problem was just that. Okay, Jesus is getting a little crazy with this idea of you know, being sacrificed. You know, I'll, I'll sell him, they'll, they'll punish him and all that. I don't think he expected them to, to crucify him. You know, they'll beat him, they'll, they'll put him in his place, and, and then he can go back. You know, I think that was his thought. You know, I'm going to do the wrong thing and hope for a good, good response. In human terms, it is the ends justify the means. If I do something and something good happens because of it, then even though what I did was bad, is <laughs> okay because I got a good ending. And that is not God's way of doing things. God always says, you're... What you do, why you do it, is as important as what is accomplished on it. And too many times we think, well, God, I think I just had to be done this way because I couldn't see any other way. And God goes, you didn't see everything. I had all kinds of ways that could have been done that would have been right. And we need to be very careful of this. And Saul is stepping out in a place he doesn't belong. He's already been made king. And remember, what's part of the part of the king? It says the king's going to take 10% of everything you have. He's going to take the best of your lands, the best of your servants. The, you know, he's already, as king, taking what belongs to God. And now he's going to say, okay, now not only am I going to take what's supposed to be going to God, I am going to go and do the priest's job. Uh, just a little bit too bold that he's getting, getting out there. But again, when you look at what he's going through, you can see why he did it. We've all done things like this ourselves where we do something out of desperation, the wrong, the wrong thing, and hope for something good to happen. And that's what Saul is going to look at. And verse 10, And it came to pass that as soon as he made an end of the offering, the, of the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. <laughs> and Saul went out to meet him. Yeah. God does things in his own time. And almost inevitably, when you've done it yourself or you've seen somebody do, when they do something the wrong way to get a good result, the way it should have been done all of a sudden props up real quick. And, oh, man, if I had just waited another 12 hours, 24 hours or whatever, I would have seen the right way to do this. Or God would have opened up this way. Most of the time in our life, God does just that with us. He puts us in a position where are we going to trust him or do things our own way. Unfortunately, many times we choose to do it our own way. And we end up with just the, the dilemma that Saul's in. Okay? Again, it, what Saul's reasoning is seems good. He's losing his army. Samuel hasn't been coming, hasn't come in time. He's losing his army. There's a huge army against him. He can't really afford to lose anybody else. So he steps up and says, I'll do the job. And as soon as he starts doing it, Samuel shows up. Uh, and Samuel's first question is, 
what have you done? <laughs> okay. Uh, so what have you done? You were king, not priest, basically, he's coming out to say. You know, uh, and this is a question you often get. If you're, if you're a subordinate doing more than you're supposed to, you'll often hear, what are you doing? What, what, what in the world possessed you to do those decisions? And Saul's answer was, because I saw that the people were scattered from me. Okay, He says, I've got a real problem. The people are leaving. And, by the way, you hadn't come when you said you were going to be here. I love what it says. And the, and the Philistines were gathered together. Therefore, he said, uh, the Philistines will come down on me before, on Gilgal, before I've made supplication. So he says, I saw all these problems, and because I hadn't had a chance to pray to God and give him his offering, I did it. And I, and I love the way he said it. Uh, in last part of verse 12, I forced myself, therefore, and offered the burnt offering. You know, Samuel, I really didn't want to do it, but I saw no other choice on it, so I just forced myself to do the wrong thing. This is a felt compelled. Yeah, yeah I like force. Force is better. Uh, but if for, I feel compelled is very similar. All right. Samuel, I saw no other way. I'm losing all my people. I hadn't had a chance to pray to God. Uh, the army was gathered against me, so I just forced myself to, to make this offering so that we could make, you know, so that we could go before God. This is something the Pharisees in Jesus' day would have said. All right, we've kept all the laws, and okay, well, we've got to do this part, so who, who's the best choice to do whatever it is we need to do? we need to be very careful that we don't force ourselves to do sin to try to accomplish something good. And again, if it's true, if what he's saying is absolutely true, he's doing it from a fleshly position to do something good. Well, you know, Saul, Samuel, I, everything was going wrong, and I felt just if I made this sacrifice, God would be blessing us and everything would go right. That's his mindset. Uh, but again, what we know from Scripture is it is never the right thing to do wrong to get a good result. All right? Just, it never works. Sin has consequences, and this sin is going to have a consequence that is much more than Saul had ever anticipated it being. So, but we see this all through the Scriptures. Remember when Barak told Deborah that he would, he would only go to battle if she went with him? And what was the prophecy that if I go, I will go with you, but now you won't get the victory and you won't get the credit. It'll go to another woman. And when we had the individual who put the tent stake through Sisera's uh, head and na nailed him right down to the ground. Was she the She's the only one that I can think of that yeah. nailed somebody to yeah. nailed somebody to the ground. But there's other women that did bad things or did did things, but nothing, nothing. I can't remember any other that actually nailed somebody to the ground with a with a tent stake. Uh, she definitely knew how to use the tent stake and the hammer. Uh, so anyway, he says, "I forced myself to offer this offering." Verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, "You have done foolishly." You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now would the Lord have established your kingdom upon Israel forever. 
But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be a captain, be the be captain over his people, because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded you. And Saul arose and got him up from Gilgal unto Gilead of Beth Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people that were present with him about six hundred men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people that were present with them abode in Gilead of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. All right, so Saul says, you have done foolishly. You have not been wise. And that is what God will tell any of us if we step above what he's asked us to do. And again, it may seem like the right thing to do when we're in the middle of it. From the flesh's point of view, sometimes it is going to be the obvious thing to do, but it's not what God has said to do. So by him offering a sacrifice, he was usurping the priest's position and this is why Saul, uh, Samuel is so hard on him. You have done foolishly. You knew better. It wasn't, this is an ignorance. This is not an ignorant thing he did. This is why he says, I forced myself to do this because I had no other choice. I didn't, basically saying there's not another, there's not a, a Levite here. There's no children of Aaron in my camp. So I just forced myself to make this sacrifice because I had nobody else that could do it. And by the way, Samuel, you're just as much as fault because you weren't here in seven days like you said you were supposed to be. Your fault. This is usually what happens when we try to justify our actions. And it's not something new. It goes all the way back to the very first sin. When God said, you know, what is it that you've done? Have you eaten the fruit? You know, Adam, you know, did you eat the fruit? And he goes, yeah, you know, uh, I did, but, it, but the woman that you gave me did it. So he's pointing both ways. It's her fault, and by the way, God, if you hadn't given her to me, then she would never have given it to me, and I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. Uh, and then Eve, of course, says, well, it's the serpent's fault. <laughs> okay, this has been man's routine forever. And we do it even to this day. Blame it on somebody else. It really wasn't my fault. You know, yes, I know I was wrong, but you know, uh, look at all the circumstances. All these circumstances, I just had no other choice. Or this person was the reason, you know, and this is what Saul's doing. You know, I had no other choice. Look at this army gathered against me. And I'm losing my army. I have no choice. And by the way, Samuel, if you'd have been here seven days like you were supposed to have been, he wasn't quite that blunt. But really, that's what he's saying. You weren't here. You, you weren't here. If you'd just been here seven, you know, on the seventh day like you were supposed to have been, you would have offered this sacrifice, and I never would have offered it. You've done foolishly and have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. And this is where I said he, he knew the rules. He knew that the only one that could offer the sacrifice is a priest, which had to be a, a, of Aaron's clan, and it, at the very least, a Levite. Okay, Levites in a pinch could do the, do, the, do the sacrifice, but basically he did not go to either one of them. And it would be hard to believe that he's gathered an army and didn't have a single Levite at his command. All right, and then again, he's also pushing it, pushing it, back, to, pushing it back to Samuel. And it says, which he commanded, and now would the Lord have established your kingdom upon Israel forever? So he says, you would have had it, your, your rule would have lasted for eternity. Now we know that that would not, that this had to have happened in this case because the prophecy of Jacob over Judah is that the scepter will be in your, in your tribe. 
Saul is not of the tribe of Judah. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. So he is not really the king's tribe, even from the earliest prophecy. Okay, the earliest prophecy was before there even, you know, when there's just uh, 70 people in the entire nation of Israel, and Jacob said, tells Judah, the scepter will be in your, in your, your tribe. So we know that even though God was willing to make Saul king forever, God also knew that Saul was not going to be the, the choice. And he's being told by Samuel, you could have ruled forever, but now because of your disobedience, your, your kingdom's going to be taken away. Verse, verse 14, but, remember we like the word but, that means something totally is changing. But now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the captain over his people, because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded you. All right? And we know from Bible studies and, and know, knowledge of our Bible that God is going to replace Saul with David. And David is of the tribe of Judah, and so Judah gets the throne, and he gets the promise that your, your seed will rule forever in spite of the sins that David's going to commit. David, David has a lot of problems too, but he seems to keep back, coming back to God and repenting when he sins, eventually. Sometimes it takes a year, but uh, he, he repents in his case. But, but Samuel is telling Saul, because of your disobedience, your family's not going to reign. Now, what a consequence for a moment of disobedience. And sometimes our consequences in our life can be just as devastating as this. Not that we have a kingdom to lose, <laughs> but you know, how many people have gotten drunk in one night and then gone out and been up in an accident and, and broken a back or ended up being, being paralyzed or killing somebody and ended up in prison for the rest of their life, all because they had to go out and get, get drunk that night or, or get high and go out, go out. Sin always has consequences always has a higher consequence than we ever think it's going to be. We get people who go out and have their one night stand and end up with some terrible STD or, or, or AIDS, you know, or of, of, of things just because of one time that they've gone out. Uh, you know, sin always has a consequence and sometimes much more than we want to even think about. Saul's consequence, all he, all he did was, is sacrifice an animal. This is true. He, he, he could have been burnt up like uh, Adab and Abihu, uh, Aaron's sons, who did things their own way on the opening of the temple. Uh, he could have been Hezekiah and been struck with leprosy uh, for wanting to do it. I mean, you're right. There's, you know, his, his consequence was minor in one sense, but he's not going to look at it as being a minor, minor problem. He's, his son Jonathan is not going to be the next king, uh, and he knows it because of his sin, which has got to make it even harder on him. When you know that somebody else is suffering because of something you did, and you know that you're the one that's at fault, it is hard sometimes to forgive yourself, and also hard to look at that person that is no longer going to get the blessing that should have been theirs if you hadn't committed that sin. And so this is a huge issue in Saul's life. Uh, he, he just, he saw no other way out of it and it took, had the kingdom taken away from him or from his sons. 
there's another king, I can't remember his name, but he, he asks for a blessing and God says, okay, you're going, to, you're going to have, you're going to be blessed for the rest of your rule, but your son will be, will, will have be punished and lose the kingdom. And he says, okay, that's good. You know, what a guy. <laughs> you know, okay, God, I'm okay. You could, you could be beat up on my, my son or my grandson, but you know, I'm okay. You know, and we laugh about that, but how many people are that way? Okay, you know, uh, I'm okay, y'all. You're gonna punish. You're gonna punish my best friend or my or my or my child. Okay, no problem. You go. You go take care of him. But I'm okay. You know, our human nature in the flesh is so selfish and prideful that we will really, oftentimes, willingly let others be punished for our mistakes. And this is where Saul is. And you know, Saul is kind of understanding, you know, I've just, hurt, I've just hurt my son. Now, he's not getting glad about it. He's going to be really depressed, and we're going to see that depression for the rest of his days. But he has made a simple mistake on one side by offering the sacrifice, which looked like a great idea to him. No priest here. I'm going to offer the sacrifice. And it cost him the kingdom, the, the kingdom's future for his family. And it says, God has sought a man after his own heart. And heart, we've talked about this, heart in Hebrew is the word lab, and it is our innermost seat of emotions. So God's going to say, saying, I want to find somebody who's thinking the way I am, who wants to act the way I am. Saul, you've been prideful, you've been, you've been full of yourself all this time, and you're not, you're not a man that's seeking my will. You're not one that wants to obey me. And he ends up choosing David. And for most part, what we can look at David is David was a man who made lots of mistakes, just like all people do. But he would come to God and say, God, I am sorry. And you know, this is what he expects from us. When we make a mistake, he wants us to repent. God, I am sorry that I did this. And that repentance oftentimes will let God relent on the worst parts of our punishment. We'll still get punished. David got punished with his with his act against uh, adultery against uh, Bash with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And it said, the sword will not depart from your house. And we see all kinds of problems in David's family from that point on. All kinds of battles. He, matter of fact, his own son rises up against him in rebellion and tries to take the kingdom away from him. Is, uh, he's going to have all these problems. He says, and God said, furthermore, what you did in secret will be done out in the open. You know, he had adultery in, in secret. His son, when he rebelled against him, took all his concubines up onto the palace rooftop and took them into the tent and had sex with them each on successive nights just to show that he was, you know, disrespecting his father. You know, and it was obvious to all the people. There he is, maybe not seeing what was going on in the tent, but they said they saw him going in over and over with the concubines. You know, what David did in secret was, was done openly in, in front of other people. And this is what happens. God says that our sin will be shouted from the rooftops. If we don't repent, everybody's going to get to know what your sin is. I mean, God has a way of doing it. And I've said that that's directly in proportion to your, your standing within the church and within, within people. If you're, if you're, stand, you know, if you're just a, a leader to two or three people, those two or three people will get to know your sin. If you, if you have a standing like some of these mega pastors that have gone out and committed adultery, the entire world gets to know about their sin. 
Why? Because they have that much standing. And God says, no, you're not going to drag my name through the, through the mud. If you're going to stand up and, and, and willfully sin and not repent, and it has to be opened up in front of people before you repent, you're, it's going to be known. And this is something we need to be very careful of. God will reveal our sin if we don't repent of it. Sometimes even if we repent of it, he might. But definitely, if you repent of it, you stand this chance of having it put under the blood and not revealed to other people because you've dealt with it. If God has to drag it out into the open, he will. He will not let our sin continue without others getting to see it. If that's what, because he's not going to say, you know, it's okay. Sin is never okay with God. And this is what I keep telling us. You know, we don't do good things so that we impress God. We do good things because he has changed who we are. But at the same token, he's not going to let us go out and say, okay, well, God, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm just going to do all kinds of bad stuff. And God's going to say, no, that doesn't work either. His, you know, Paul said it, you know, do we go out and sin so that grace shall abound? He said, God forbid. There's more grace out there than we need, need and we all need grace every day. But it doesn't go, let me go out and do as much sin as I can possibly do so that God can give me lots of grace. We're going to get grace no matter what because we all sin. All of us have a problem with sin. Even when we've been walking with God for decades, we still have problems with sin. And God is saying, repent. Get old, you know, bring it before me and put it under the blood or eventually he will reveal, their, reveal that sin. And Saul's sin is being gathered up real quick. This is one of the reasons I don't think Saul really ever intended to repent from this. The, the punishment was swift and harsh. David, when Nathan came to him, said, you know, gave him the big long story about the man stealing the sheep, the, the, the poor man's only sheep and killing it. And David gets so angry, he says, that man deserves to die. And it says, you are the man, and David repents. All right? David had the heart for God that he was going to repent. Now, in that particular case, he had to be challenged to repent. And we know that the child has been born and is about a year old, so it's about a two-year span that David has not repented before God for the murder of Uriah and the adultery with Bathsheba. It's a long time to be out of fellowship with God, but God says, I know that he'll repent as soon as it's brought to him. Samuel came to Saul and said, what have you done? And Saul didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I repent. He justified himself and he got punished for it. Adam and Eve tried to justify themselves. They didn't try to, you know, well, God, we really messed up. We, you know, forgive us. And if we try to justify ourselves, God says, no, that's not where we're going to be. It's time for you to, you know, you're going to get punished for it. If we repent, doesn't mean all the consequences will be, gone, will be gone. We all understand that there's some consequences for our sin that will be there forever or for a long period of time. But God says, you're forgiven. And he may take some of the consequences. And there may be consequences we never even thought about that he takes away. And Saul loses his kingdom. And it says he went, he left, he left Gilgal and he went up to Gibeah, which is that place about 12 miles, 10 miles north of, north of Jerusalem. And he counted his army, and he had 600 men. This also kind of helps you understand why he's a little nervous. Okay, From his point of view, 
He has forgotten the story of Gideon. He has forgotten the story, you know, the story of Samson. He's forgotten the story of all these uh, judges that have won victories with little, with one man to, or just you know 300 in the case of Gideon. All he saw was the problem, and he forgot God. He totally ruled out God's favor. You know, God could have taken the 600 men that Saul had and defeated the Philistine army, even though it was so large. And of course, God could have just dumped tailstones on them and, and all kinds of stuff. God could have destroyed them even without Saul having to do, do a thing. But Saul sees with his eyes and doesn't walk by faith. And this is something we need to be careful. The scripture says in four places, the just shall live by faith. Okay. Unfortunately, we're fleshly beings, and too often we live by what we see. God, I see nothing but problems. I don't see how this could possibly work out. And instead of walking by faith, we walk by what we see. And we need to be very careful about this. We look at it and say, God, what is it you want us to do? You know, and again, we read these different stories. You know, uh, Elizabeth Elliot. Was, and her husband had, were missionaries in South, South America and the Indian, the cannibal tribe killed her husband. A year later they came into their camp and said, you know, we need to know about this God that you guys represent. She and her kids moved in with the cannibals that killed her husband you know, and evangelized them and, and changed them completely to a Christian, Christianized tribe. You know. Now, looking by faith, would anybody have done that? Uh, I think I'm going to go live with the cannibals with me and my kids. Yeah, they've already killed the they've killed the men. They've killed they've killed they've killed three men, but we'll we'll go live with them. And then one other one one of the other wives that who lost her husband went with her. So two women, a bunch of kids, go in to evangelize a tribe of cannibal headhunters. And they well they totally converted them. <laughs> uh, so you know by sight it was like uh-uh, I'm not doing this, but God by faith says. Go do it. You know, we, I talk about George Mueller praying for, thanking God for the breakfast that wasn't there. You know, he was walking by faith, not by sight. You know, we, we tend to do this so often as walking by sight. Yeah, it kind of goes back to all things work together for good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they never understood, the Indians didn't understand what had happened. They, they only knew something strange about these people. Because they were expecting to be counterattacked. That would have been the number one thing. You know, you, you killed, you deserved to be attacked, and the attack never came. Uh, but, you know, we look at this and we say, God, what is it that you want us to do? And, you know, walking by faith is not easy. It is never easy. To step out and do something that you think God wants you to do and watch God bless it is an amazing thing so often. God, what is it you, what is it you want done? How, how, do you, how are you going to use us? And I've already shared with you so many times over the years, I've watched people use the strangest people to run, run jobs in the church, run, run missions and do things. Uh, you know, George Mueller was the last person you'd think to be, you know, looking to ask for prayers for God's help. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot would be the last person you'd think would be going into this jungle. Uh, Corey Ten Boom was asked to love these people that she hated for all the damage they had done to her family and to the Jews. 
And God's telling her, I want you to learn to love. Louis Zapparino, same thing. He was told to go back to Japan and show love to all these people that had brutalized him in the prison or war camp. Yeah. God will ask us to do some things that are very hard to understand by, the, by sight. I would say impossible to understand by sight. And he says, step out. Yeah. So many times in churches, you'll say, I want you to step out. God, we can't afford to do something like that. And God says, it's time to do it. And we look and say, God, okay, you know, what is it you want? And step out and do it. You know, in our own personal lives, it might be something as simple as God saying, I want you to start tithing. God, I can't afford to live on what I make already. And God says, well, I know that, but I want you to start tithing. You know, we need to look at what God is asking us to do. Maybe he's trying to teach us to pray. You know, prayer is not the easiest thing in the world. You know, how many of us uh, only ask God for the big things in our life? You know, if it's a big problem, we'll, we'll talk to God. But God, if it's something small, I'll deal with it. I've always wondered, if you really follow that logic, uh, what is a big problem to God? <laughs> you know, I'm, it may be life-devastating to me, but to God, it's not a big problem. He created the heavens and the earth and holds everything together. There is no big problem for God. So anything we take to him is trivial from his perspective. It may be big to us, but it's trivial from his perspective. So we need to be able to just say, God, I'm going to trust you in everything. In the scripture, there's nothing that God says is too small to bring to him. We're to pray without ceasing in everything, make our supplications made known to him. You know, God, you know, I need whatever it might be. Now, I know people that pray for parking spaces up front of the buildings. I, I usually just park away so I can walk. I need to exercise. But, <laughs> but if there's every once in a while when I'm in a real big hurry, I say, God, I need a parking space right up front. And you know what? There'll be a parking space right up front. I don't pray that pray very, very often. But if I'm in a hurry and I say, I've got to get in and out, it, it'll be there. God wants to give us the littlest things out there if we just want to trust him. Because if we really understand I can do nothing without Christ, then I need to pray for everything. God, I really think I can do this, but I'm going to ask you to help me out. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> Good advice, because God may just change your plan. May give you a new way of doing something. All right, so there's 600 men. Verse 16, And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people that were with, present with him, abode in Gil Gilead of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michpash. So the entire army stays there in Michpash. Uh, basically, again, right in the center of this new kingdom. Uh, verse 17. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned into the way that leads to Ophrah and into the land of Shual. Another company turned away to Beth-Koram, and another company turned to the way of the border that looks to the valley of Zebanim toward the wilderness. All right, so the Philistines are going to take their army and, and make three different groups to come out. The spoilers, the destroyers. All right, you've got 36,000 chariots and horsemen and a whole bunch of people. You're going to have some very large companies and three companies going out. And it says, one company is, again, Mishpah is about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. One company is going to go to Ophrah, which is about five miles east of Bethel. And Bethel is on your map there, above Mizpah. 
Another is going to go to Beth Horan, which is over to the west, west there. And the other one is going to Zebulun, which is a valley that's between Jerusalem and Jericho. Okay, so they're putting their army and sending them on all the sides of Jerusalem, which is no big deal this time because Jerusalem doesn't belong to Israel. Okay, Jerusalem belongs to the Jebusite people. It's going to belong to them until David's men capture it and take it to be the, the holy city of, uh, for Israel. So right now, Jerusalem doesn't belong to Israel. It belongs to a whole other nation that was never conquered because it was up on a mountain, and the mountain's hard to take a big city, and it has a wall. But the Philistines are moving all the way around this Jerusalem uh, and going around Benjamin. All right, remember, Saul is from Benjamin. So they're encircling Benjamin with these moves that they're making. Kind of a scary point in, point in time. All of a sudden, he's got attackers on three different sides of his, of his tribe's territory. And verse 19. Now, there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the he Hebrews make them swords or spears, but all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his spar, his coulter, his axe, and his mattocks. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goads. And it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and with Jonathan his son was there found. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. All right, so this is just a little side note. The Israelites don't have any weapons. <laughs> all right. Uh, by the way, we're, we're, we're calling you all to fight, but we're, we, you don't have any weapons, so bring anything that has an edge. Anything that has an edge or a point, bring it. And this is what it says, you know, no smiths in there because they didn't, were afraid of them making swords. And it says, and they sharpened everybody, his shar, which is the plow, the, the plow uh, part that cuts the ground. The coulter, which is another part of the plow. <laughs> uh, and they bring their axes <laughs> and their mattocks, which the only thing I could find out is, it says it's either a plowshare, but they've already used the plowshare twice or engraving knives or small knives, right? Hoe. Ho? Okay, a hoe. I, I never found that in any of my definitions, but I'll buy it. Yeah, well, yeah. I'll, I'll buy it. It's not going to bother. Basically, anything that has an edge, they're sharpening to as sharp as they can get it. Now, I can't imagine going to battle with a hoe. What uh, <laughs> 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 enough. Bad enough with the plowshare, but at least on the plowshare you could put it on some kind of pole, pole or something, I don't know, and end up with something that's kind of like a, a pike or something, uh, and their goads and all the things. Uh, and it says in the next verse, there were at least some files so that they could do some you know, sharpening. You know, use a file to sharpen, a stone to sharpen. Uh, yes, what does your say? No, the Israelites went down into the Philistines to sharpen. They were going to the blacksmiths of the Philistines. No, they were, they were trying to get things sharpened. 
So basically it's, okay, I've got all my farm implements. I'm going to go down to the smith and say, I need these sharpened so I can do my farming. Okay. All right. Now we plan to use them in battle, but. Uh, so that's why they use that farming equipment stuff because then they can. That's the only thing they have. It's the only thing they have to go out there. They don't have any swords. They don't have spears. I would imagine that they had some bows for hunting, but it doesn't say that. And we know that there's going to be some people with uh, uh, slings because the sling is very easy to make. All you need is a piece of leather uh, at, at that day and, and, a and a few stones. And stones were pretty easy to find in Israel. Uh, but as far as cutting, cutting materials, they did not have anything to go to war. So when Saul calls these <laughs> the 3,000 together before that, you know, it's quite a step of faith for these people to come together. They don't have any weapons. How do we fight? <laughs> you know, they're bringing their cattle prods and their goads and, their, and whatever they have available. And you can almost picture this very strange picture. You've got the army with swords and spears and shields and all of that. And a whole bunch of farmers with their with their pitchforks and their and their plowshares, uh, their plows and their and their hoes, and they're going to go to battle. Well, pitchforks you stab pretty good. Well, yeah, but still, against a against a sword, it's not really the greatest weapon. They can cut your pitchfork in half. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, basically. Uh, same picture, yes. People coming in with battles. But verse 21 says they go down and they get, you know, they have a file so they're able to really get a good fine edge to these, to these things. Uh, they go to the blacksmiths and say we want an edge on them and then they're able to take a file and really file them into a fine, a fine edge or a stone type of thing and get them to a really good, good edge. And then it says, and when the day of the battle came, the only two people with a sword were Saul and Jonathan. I really don't know where Saul and Jonathan got a weapon. <laughs> Uh, got their sword from, uh, took, it, took it in battle or whatever, but they have swords that they have either had made for them. And then it says, the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michpash. Right, so there's a garrison, that it, and it doesn't tell us which garrison it was. They, they sent out their forces to a passage to Michpash. So we're ending up, Saul and the Israelites are almost worse off than when they started gathering the 3,000 men because now Benjamin is surrounded on three sides. The tribe of Benjamin is surrounded on three sides and we're going to end our story at this point. <laughs> All right. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity. Lord, help us to learn to serve you your way at all times. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us not to usurp authority when to do things that are not the way you want them done. And we just thank in Jesus' name, amen.